0: This episode could contain profanity, it's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a gist newsletter. To sign up for it, our once a week newsletter, go to slate.com slash gist news. <laughs> It's Friday, October 25th, 2019. From Slated to the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. So, funny story from my own life. I have a son, Milo. He is 12 years old. And I don't think he would mind if I tell you this one fact about him. So, here goes. He is an inveterate bedwetter. Okay, wait, hold on. Just getting a text. Ah, turns out he would mind if I told you that. No, I'm kidding. He's not a bedwetter. And I also did get permission to make that joke. He's a joker. It's just a joke. But he is a student in the theater arts program. And his assignment over last weekend was to write a paper about an actor or actress who is either Italian, LGBT, or Hispanic. I spent a lot of time trying to find one who is all three. But I couldn't. So first, I thought about Italian. I'm Italian. A little bit of Italian. He's a little less Italian. So let's start there. Does he know Pacino? He does not. Does he know De Niro? He does not. Ben Gazzara? No. Scott Bayo. Thank God, no. So I asked Milo, okay, well, let's go through this. What are your favorite TV shows? And he said, The Good Place, This Is Us, in Riverdale. I got him into the good place. He got me into This Is Us. And you know what? I let him have Riverdale. I think it's good for kids to have their own things. Who needs dad intruding on that space, right? I mean, I'm, I so want to get into that world, but, but I hold off. So what I'm saying is I don't know if Riverdale has any Italians, all right? And I'm pretty sure The Good Place doesn't. But This Is Us, Milo Ventimiglia. Great suggestion. How about Milo Ventimiglia? Milo Pesca says no. No. I don't want to report on him, he says, because people will just think I'm picking him because he's a fellow Milo. Wow. Okay. This is either some highly ethical recusal that I don't get or something else. Anyway, he's not going to do it and I'm out of Italians. So LGBT. I don't know. I could go through the cast list to find out how gay they are, how they identify. I don't know what the good websites to search for this sort of thing is. What if he inadvertently outs someone in his seventh grade paper? That would be bad. So let's go to Hispanic. And boom, right away, we don't even think about the TV shows. Hamilton. He's a theater arts kid. He loves Hamilton. He's going to do Lin-Manuel Miranda. It is decided. And he does. He writes the paper. He does the research. It's very good. And we're going over the paper. And he has made one mistake throughout the paper. Instead of Hispanic, he has written (laughs) Haspanic. I can Haspanic, I guess, from a 2009 meme. has P-A-N-I-C, <laughs> has the Hispanic panic. Okay, okay, look, it's no problem. He was just going by how the word sounded to him. So we do the computer thing, control F, find all references to haspanic. There are like five or six in the paper and do a replace all. And the haspanic references now become, throughout the paper, hispanic. But then I start talking to him and I say, okay, you know, Milo, there's another word that's gaining more popularity for Hispanic, and that is Latinx or Latinx. But I I, I hear people saying Latinx. I say, you know, it used to be Latino or Latina, but now people of the Latinx heritage are calling themselves Latinx. And I presented this to him because you might not know this from just listening to uh, the things I say on the show, but my aim is not to instill in my children some old-fashioned beliefs, right? I mean, I could talk all I want about precision and nuances of changing labels, but I figure this kid's going to live in his world. And in his world, people very well might say Latinx and not Latino, Latina, or even Hispanic. And, of course, there are differences. I have since found out uh, nuances that Hispanic refers to more language, Latinx, uh, Latin America, including perhaps uh, the, the the Portuguese speakers of Brazil and Haitians who speak Creole. Yes, I know this, but I'm just saying this is a different phrase that would apply to Lin-Manuel Miranda, Latinx. So I say, do you want to change All or some of your references from Hispanic to Latinx, the same way we did from Hispanic to Hispanic. And he says, dad, you're asking me if I want to control F. So perform a search where I find all the Hispanics, right? Right. And then after I control and find all the Hispanics, you're asking me if I want to replace all the Hispanics that I find, right? I am saying that. Well, dad, he asks, if I did that, if I controlled, found and replaced all the Hispanics, how would I be any better than Stephen Miller? And I said, good point, Milo. Excellent point. Also, unlike Stephen Miller, I want to be clear about this. You do not wet the bed. But first, Joel Stein has long been one of my favorite correspondents, a bellatrist, and dare I say, a bit of a Beau Brummel. Okay, I am gilding the lily, or perhaps platinum-coating the orchid, because what I'm trying to do is establish that Joel Stein is an elitist, a proud elitist, A Chablis swilling, runny Brindamore cheese-eating, user of Q-tips, only around the ears, never inside, society grandee. And this positions him to hold forth in the manner of his new book, Book Nay, Tome. It is titled, In Defense of Elitism, Why I'm Better Than You and You Are Better Than Someone Who Didn't Buy This Book. If you listen to my upcoming interview with Joel Stein, you will be even better than all of the aforementioned parties. unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Elitism, it's one of those words or phrases like moral equivalence or collective punishment that everyone knows to be against, and yet you will never meet someone who offers a defense of the term. How is it this thing that we're all against it, and it exists, and yet you've never met someone for it? Well, I will say this. I'm for all of those things, and my guest, Joel Stein, is for at least one of them. His new book is called In Defense of Elitism, Why I'm Better Than You and you are better than someone who didn't buy this book. Hello, Joel. Welcome
1: to The Gist. Oh, I love hearing your voice reading <laughs> the title of my book. That's what... I, That's I, my if, new ringtone. If
0: you wanted me to do the audiobook, I could.
1: That uh, is an elitist voice.
0: <laughs> so... As I was reading this book, I said to myself, this is good, but you know, it's a lot like past Just Guest's Tom Nichols book, The Death of Expertise. It's a lot like this book, but better. And then I was reading your book and you said, Tom is the author of The Death of Expertise, which is a lot like this book, only far better, which is why I waited until page 277 to tell you about his book. So I respect you for acknowledging that his book is just a
1: lot better. It it is a lot better. Because he's
0: more of an elite than you are. What are your credentials compared to his?
1: Yeah, mine are weaker. Mine are just media credentials. Like. How many games of Jeopardy did you win? I've uh, At home, watching, <laughs> millions. <laughs> have you ever taught at the Navy War College? I've never, I don't even know where it is. Yeah. So yeah. his
0: deal is, he goes- My book
1: is funnier than Tom's, and that's all I've got going for it.
0: He goes head first, and he called it expertise, and I think there is a difference between- He exper- out. Well, expertise we could all get behind, oh, no, an expert's our yeah. surgeon, but an elite is the guy with the monocle who is on the front and yes. back of the book. Yeah. So when we talk about elitism, Are we kind of giving ourselves, or maybe not ourselves, but the people who don't like the elites, a little bit of a mental shortcut by tagging it with this pejorative, thus allowing them to, you know, visit calumny upon these supposed elites?
1: Yes, but I think we have to take the turn back. We have to reappropriate it. because. (laughs)
0: But who's we? I don't want to admit to being an elite. Oh, you
1: have to. (laughs) Before I leave here, I'm going to get you to do it. Fine. Yeah, you clearly are. Well, I'm better than many people in yeah. a lot of
0: ways. I just can't say that out loud.
1: You just did. No, I'll yes. never win an election.
0: <laughs> don't you Don't you look at other countries where they're kind of allowed to be witty or clever or mm-hmm. smart and then compare it to America where everyone has to be, you know, aw shucks, down home. John Kerry, I like hunting and oh. I'm going to wear camo. Isn't it disturbing? Oh,
1: when Elizabeth Warren started talking about having, uh, she loves having a beer. She said it worse than that, but it's very- yeah.
0: The whole yeah, life. Trump, Trump, and Bush both won is the guy you'd rather have the beer with. Uh, Guess what?
1: They don't drink. Look, look, who is the president you least want to have a beer with? It's Abraham Lincoln, who didn't drink because he thought it made him like tired and flabby, <laughs> which is what uh, what your friend says at the bar when you no longer ever take her to a bar again. <laughs> I didn't know he had body issues. And who was the best drinker? Teddy Roosevelt, James Buchanan.
0: Oh yeah, he was president.
1: <laughs> he had the worst, literally the worst president. He had a barrel of whiskey brought to the. Uh, the White House every week. Uh Uh-huh. They got himself. Yeah. And he had only the best champagne. I think he was thrown out of his fraternity or college twice for drinking too much. Yeah. You start with a bottle from the Trump vineyard. Yeah. So I brought this bottle of Trump's Blanc de Blanc sparkling wine from Virginia to this party on my block full of liberals, and I was going to toast... Trump with the same sad attempt to be an elitist yeah. uh, that he created.
0: This election night.
1: Election oh night. Oh, God. 2016. And I was, everyone was having a good time. They all thought Hillary Clinton was going to win and they weren't paying attention to the TVs. And I was the nerd on my computer looking at county results. Yeah. And were you looking at the New York Times needle? Were you watching the needle? The needle was okay. Yeah. But I was also looking at county results <laughs> and I was freaking out because I was like, I knew North Carolina wasn't supposed to go that way. And uh-huh. I, saw, I saw exit returns from Florida that weren't supposed to go that way. And I just, it's not that I'm afraid of a Republican president, like some of my best friends who make wine are Republicans, (laughs) but I was, I don't feel like populists have beaten the elites since Andrew Jackson beat John Quincy Adams and just picking someone who was going to operate from his gut, who knew more than the generals knew, which we're seeing in country after country after country is what made me write this book.
0: Well, the thing is they say that, like they all say it, they Mm -hmm. all talk about the gut, I guess. Kennedy, with his top hat on in the inauguration, was the last person who was allowed to be witty, who was allowed to just revel in his own intellect as intellect. Just that Trump, when George W. Bush talked about going from his gut, he was really going from Cheney's gut. And whatever you think of Cheney, you know, he's an an elite. He is an elite, right? Yes. Trump is boat elite, which you talk about, but he really only goes from his gut because he knows nothing, and that is a big change. Someone who's this stupid,
1: and proud this of it. ignorant, not like Reagan, president. who who may not know everything, but right. picks experts and listens to them. Someone who, who literally won't listen to anyone in the room because they feel like they know better. It's what Sarah Palin talked about, like, I'm not going to pretend to know more than the next person. Yeah, Which, to me, is the most arrogant thing to say, because you think you should be like a heartbeat away from the president and not know anything more than the other, other people? how about how about you read the paper? Yeah, it would be okay if the next person's not Sarah Palin yes or
0: you know all the various Palins assembled. Like she has a big brood of next people and they're not the best people.
1: No, no. So I'm worried about populism in all forms from the Mm -hmm. left and the right. And I feel like we're about to throw away a civilization that we built. What's the, uh,
0: what's good forms of populism? That doesn't have the pejorative that elite does, even though, you know, you present them as opposites.
1: No, and I feel like it shouldn't. Like you said, one thing I get into in the book, there's this guy, Vilfredo Pareto in 1900, (laughs) who came up with the 80-20 principle. right. He was Mussolini's favorite economist. Sure. Yeah, he was this fascist. Yeah. And I kind of modernize it and I call it the intellectual elite, which are the elites we were talking about, and the boat elite. Because mm-hmm. Trump makes this crazy speech like a year ago in Minneapolis after crapping on the elites, as so many Republicans have for so long. He suddenly, out of nowhere, starts saying at this rally, and then he says it afterwards, wait, we're the elite. Like, we have bigger houses, and we have boats. We have better boats. And I was like, oh, that's right. That's who these people are. They're boat people. Yeah. The boat elite. <laughs> the boat people. Uh, there's nothing worse than people who own boats.
0: <laughs> well, it depends. There are a couple kinds of boat oh. people. There are the outboard motor, yes. bass pro shop boat yes. people. And then there are the yacht people.
1: They're all bad. You know, a Equally lot, bad.
0: Well, it, I mean, but the teeth clenchedness of both those clans are decidedly different. The yacht
1: people are they're they're they like each other though if you're gonna buy something <laughs> <meet> worth, somewhere <laughs> oh, if, i'm talking about fathoms both of them we want to get them 12 miles offshore and then they we let them do whatever the hell they want <laughs> if you're gonna buy something super expensive and the first thing you do with it is smash a bottle of champagne against it yeah you're a bad person what if it's uh trump vintage sparkling wine? i'm sure it is yeah. i'm sure that's exactly you know trump won it
0: was so mad when they told him he couldn't call it champagne <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. He also spells Blanc de Blanc a little weird on the label. Like He's the only one who does it in singular compared uh-huh. to everyone in France who puts an S on the end. It's Wait. weird. I can't figure out. But the wine is not quite as bad as you hope it would be.
0: Yeah, I, that would be very elite for me to judge him on his bad wine. Perfect. I think a lot of that's another that is a form of elitism where they mock Trump for stuff that's like who gives a damn the quality of his martini at the Trump Tower or like all these architects and my girlfriend's an architect and she's right. She's not wrong. But of all the things to ding him on the you know. Quality of his buildings. A lot of yeah. people build bad buildings. I'm in bad buildings all
1: day. But there is an aesthetic here that's yeah. very like <laughs> I, my, my wife, who's not an architect, noticed that a picture he took of his office. All the tiles were accent tiles, uh-huh. which you know you just put a few of because they're very they're yes, almost tacky. If everything's
0: an accent tile, yeah. you become like the speech pattern of Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Oh my god, that's exactly right. Maybe that's maybe that's why Bernie voters became Trump voters. Oh my god, they just like no subtlety. They're the anti-subtlety coalition. That's right.
1: Like Bernie wants to put. I talk about it in my book. On he talks about the Fed. Board of Governors. Yeah. He wants to put a farmer on the board. Uh He wants to put someone from a union on the board. Yeah. He wants to put just a normal, you know, person who buys things on the board. Is that
0: bad? Is that a bad idea? It's a
1: horrible idea well, like
0: a farmer who's also i've met agrarian economists who sure. are farmers great and smart people i don't
1: think that's what he meant i don't think he meant, <laughs> he just meant like i don't pr- think he met an economist a with a, dude with a, with a in, flower garden no he, <laughs> he meant a farmer a field and there, yeah. if, if we put a farmer on the board of governors there'd be two reasons we wouldn't be eating uh-huh there'd be a, a horrible horrible inflationary situation and no one will be making our food
0: yeah and the farmers wouldn't even like it. No. Yeah. Bernie has some Bernie has some ideas. Yeah. Um so do you think that Trump created more of his own sauce than was out there? You know, he glommed on to the coalition that Sarah Palin excited. And she, of course, was the first symbol that this was possible. But reality TV probably showed us that. Did he create more people to believe in anti-elitism and populism? Or did he just kind of tap into this underrated Demographic that was always out there and underserved.
1: I don't think he's saying anything new that that Sarah Palin or Pat Buchanan or Spiro Agnew wasn't saying. I think he was the luckiest guy who happened to be in the right place at the right time, and it's happening all over the world. I mean, yeah, I, I can't say it's a reaction to Obama. I, it's happening in so many countries right now. There was a great change that happened. Both there was feminism, there was immigration, there was there was a demographic change. People moved to cities. The knowledge economy took over. There's a bunch of changes at once. And I'm not sure exactly which ones really freaked people out more than other ones. But people freaked out. Yeah. And the first third of my book, I go to the county with the highest percentage of Trump voters in the country. Miami. 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 That's how they pronounce it. That's they, correct. Isn't,
0: do you find this? Whenever there's a name that a town takes that has a different, yeah. that there's a more famous town, they always pronounce it differently. Like it's <laughs> Lima, Peru, but Lima, Ohio. They always do that.
1: Yeah. In this case, it's the, it's the tribe. That was there. Yes. But I asked them what they didn't like about elites. And what, what you find is that people can feel acceleration. They can't really feel speed. So even Ooh, that's good. Even though white Christians are still the most powerful group in the country, they have less power than they used to. Mm-hmm. And that's causing an existential crisis, mm-hmm. where there are people who used to act a certain way, and now they're told that just being normal to them is evil. Yeah. I've heard people talk about... Men feeling straight men feeling closeted Mm -hmm. because they can't express themselves uh, the way they want to or the way that they used to. Yeah, and I think maybe it's
0: because of like the really nice jeans that show off other guys' asses.
1: Yeah, that that, could be a reason. That's I think that's been frustrating (laughs) for me. Sure, you're tapping into my populism right (laughs) here.
0: I tap that populism.
1: (laughs) Uh, So yeah, I think people are angry, and and it's coming out all over the place.
0: So you've done. I, I know you for your I guess opinion writings, funny writings. You had the great real estate of the back page of time and the back page of entertainment weekly you do great profiles do you think and i'm not asking you because of you specifically i would ask this to anyone do you think that you've changed minds no. ever ever at, no occasionally someone's told what do you me think works so what worked on when it worked what was it that changed minds I'm interested in this because I do this every day and I don't know how many minds I've changed.
1: I think logical arguments aren't necessarily the best. I think stories always are better.
0: So what's a story that – can you remember a story that you told that changed someone's mind? And then I'm I'm trying to apply it to this. What's a story we could tell about elitism and populism that might change a mind?
1: That's a good point. I mean, I try and tell stories in this book for that reason. I yeah. mean, one small story is the mayor of L.A. let me be the mayor of L.A. Eric for Garcetti. a day. Eric yeah. Garcetti. Yeah. And I followed him around thinking I would be making a bunch of decisions that he would be making a bunch of decisions. And he would let me make them first and tell me if I did the same ones as him. And I learned that's not what being mayor is at all. And I think that story kind of shows the complexity of what you want in a leader.
0: So my big question as I read the book and as I think about this is, is the best way to take the elites and take the populists and to sort of make the elites less elite and the populists less populist or to realize this is human nature. There's always populism. Populism can Mm be, you know, rooting in a great way for your favorite team. Populism could be chanting ugly things. Maybe we should just make populism less toxic maybe there is a way to make populism more of the e pluribus unum and less of the tribalism
1: populism doesn't have a great history in the world right i mean populism is is the stuff trump is always yelling about getting our interest rates to zero Mm -hmm. which you know leads to venezuela leads to people wiping their butts with leaves and eating zoo animals like populism isn't inherently populism isn't long-term thinking mm-hmm. which is what the elites are great at like we invented reinsurance and if you give us time we'll invent re-reinsurance like all we do is worry about possibilities yeah and populism also just never looks out for human rights and minority interests it's the it's what plato talked about like eventually democracy gets in trouble because people think it's too slow yeah the majority want something they want it now I want no immigrants, I want it now, why why can't you do that today? And that's what Trump feels. Mm -hmm. Like the majority of people voted for me, we should just do this. And we've been sold this direct democracy, which is not what the founders built. If we wanted direct democracy, the Constitution would be one page long. Instead, we've built this system of a republic that looks into people's interests, like the human rights and stuff, and and people don't want that, it's frustrating.
0: Would that one page still have the phony emoluments clause? No, the emolument Clause would be gone for sure. <laughs> Joel Stein is the author of, the bemonacled author of Nice. In Defense of Elitism. I hit the T in elitism. Is that elitist of me? I think so. Uh, let me say it in the more men of the people way. In Defense of Elitism. Have you admitted that you're a member of the elite yet? Have I gotten you there? It's not for me to admit. Such fear. <laughs> in Defense of Elitism, why I'm better than you and you are better than someone who didn't buy this book. Joel Stein, thank you. Thank you. And now the spiel, you know, if Donald Trump goes, be it impeachment or cheeseburger, we'll have to spend a long time wondering, how the hell did any of that happen? I mean, from the very beginning, how do you even get in there in the first place? I mean, there's already an intense debate. Was it the racism? Was it the economic insecurity? The obvious right answer, it was a little bit of both. That will make you no friends, I find. But one day, when we're digging out of the rubble that he has left us all in, we could begin to accurately engage in the archaeology, not just the excavation of the Trump detritus. And at that point, I hope that someone puzzles out the thing that I have lately been wondering about. I think about this all the time. So let's just lay out the fact, though we might not like to admit it, it really was amazing that Trump even became president in the first place. Oh, it's horrible and sickening, but it was amazing. It was more awful than awesome, but I am still genuinely in awe that it happened. Yeah, 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 I shouldn't have been. I don't realize the real character of America taking off the mask. I get all that. But setting aside what the real chances were and if we should have seen it coming, it still very much upended our expectations. And it did so to such a fantastic degree that it was really like, a magic trick. It was like some David Copperfield prime time in the 1980s special. And the thing I wonder about, this is the thing. if he can pull that magic trick, why can't he ever pull another one? He showed the ability to shock, to amaze, to confound, to startle. Not just via his words, like I can't believe he said that, but via an actual deed, an actual accomplishment. Getting elected president is an accomplishment. Oh, listen, the fact that he accomplished winning the presidency, it was a bad thing. Do not get me wrong. You know, but it's like your dog jumping on the Thanksgiving table and devouring most of the turkey in four large gulps. It's still an accomplishment. So this shows that Trump has the demonstrated ability to achieve something, to have an accomplishment. He showed that there is a bit of wizardry within him. Grand wizardry, if you will. But he has some magic. So I just wonder, why can't he use that magic just one other time? For something good. For something that helps us. Hell, even for something that helps his people. Helps them in ways other than rhetorically like actually improves their lives, helps them. I'm not talking about the rich Republicans who like tax cuts. That is not magic. I'm talking about doing something for the angry, disaffected, blue-collar guy who hates coastal elites. Deliver one other magic trick to actually help them. He could do it, right? He's shown he could do it. Trump, as the guy who could do one magic trick, reminds me, well, I was thinking of a story. In fact, I had this, it came to me in a dream and I hate dream logic, but I, was, I, was, I dreamt this and I want to relay it to you. So indulge me. Let's picture a fellow at a county fair. It's like an old time county fair, not, not one of these newfangled county fairs. And this fellow goes in proudly proclaiming he's going to win the pie eating contest. But it seems to everyone... Who knows anything about pie-eating contests? There's no way this guy's going to win the pie-eating contest. This guy has no experience eating pie. The tried-and-true pie-eaters, pie-eaters who were in second and third last year in the contest, you know, they're the odds-on favorites. And all this pie-eater does, all he ever does, or the supposed pie-eater, is complain about the pie-eating of the other contestants, but he has no actual experience pie-eating. He's, all right, let's say he's a pig farmer, which maybe has some relationship to pie-eating if you squint. Porks of food, okay, fine. But this loudmouth guy brags that he's gonna eat the most pies, he's gonna consume the most pies, and he does a lot of attention grabbing denigration of the fellow pie eating contestants. And he wins some of the preliminary pie eating rounds. And then we get to the finals. And he, Pie Braggart, He knows the rules, he says. He knows the title of champion pie eater goes to the contestant who consumes the most pies in five minutes. Well, not actually, it turns out, not the most pie, but the right combination of pies from the different bakeries, such that it turns out you can actually ingest the most pies and still lose because of how they weight the value of different bakeries. It's pretty complicated. Never mind. Everyone knew the rules going in. Whoever consumes, let us say, whoever consumes the most pie wins. So even though this guy is seen by the pie-eating experts as having no chance, the finals begin. And he says, oh, I've got this method. I shall be consuming the most pies. So starting gun shoots. His rival starts putting her fork in the pie, forking it into her mouth more and more and more. She's eating. She's chomping. Seems like she's pretty good at this. She clearly has good pie game. Seems like a quite competent pie eater. Maybe not the most inspiring pie eater. But, you know, you've got to admit she's showing good form. She certainly has experience. This is what we've come to expect of a good pie eater. But not our guy. Our guy just sits there glaring. And at the two-minute mark of this five-minute competition, where the goal, once more, is to consume the most pies, he lifts his first pie off the table. It's still in the pan. And he holds it aloft for a brief second. And then he takes the entire pie and he shoves it up his ass. And it disappears. What can you do? Wait, you can't do that. But it seems like he can. Then he takes another pie, shoves it right up his ass. Third pie, right up the keister. Fourth pie, right in there. Pie up the ass, pie up the ass. His competitors cannot believe it. The judges can't believe it. Most of the bakers cannot watch. A certain segment of onlookers, children, the toothless, the folks who live over yonder in the holler, find all of this captivating, supremely entertaining. But a sixth pie up the bum, and a seventh pie right up the pooper. And then the whistle blows, and the forks are down, or the fork is down, and the pies are counted. And it is undeniable. Our protagonist has consumed the most pies. Oh, afterwards, there's an inquiry. Was this allowable? Eh, probably not, but who's going to be brave enough to enforce the rules? I mean, it did delight the folks over from the holler. their country fair patrons too, and he's done it. He sort of played by the rules. He disgusted every sane person along the way. He made the judges and the fair organizers rethink this entire experiment and pie-eating itself, but he was the contest winner. And all I'm saying, and all I'm wondering, is if a guy did this— a couple years later, wouldn't you want him to do something else equally as impressive? I mean, if he could shove half a dozen peach cobblers in his patootie, if he can accommodate that much rhubarb in his backyard, why can't he do something else that's remotely as unexpected, as impactful, as world changing? And I just conclude it's because he doesn't want to. I mean, maybe he got really lucky. Maybe that was a a one-in-a-million, lightning-in-a-bottle, key lime-in-the-keister type situation. But I am a little shocked, a little disappointed, and if I'm correctly sensing your mood through the earbuds, a little disgusted, but also a little worried, because I do have this one thought that haunts me, haunts me more than the thought of a butt full of apple pie, and that is this. What if he does have one more magic trick? Would you ever count the guy who did this at the county fair out? What if he goes to the next county fair and successfully defends his title. That's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader is producer of The Gist. He is happy I didn't go with the pickled preserve analogy. Christina DeJosa produces The Gist. She's asked that she be identified as Alan Smithy for the purposes of this particular episode. The Gist. I do not actually think our president shoves pie up his butt. Cheeseburgers and chocolate cake with extra ice cream, that is another story. Uppuradepurju Peru, and thanks for listening.